Hello, welcome to the F word. And the F word, of course, stands for front end, the wonderful world of front end development, web browsers, and web standards. I'm Bruce Lawson, coming to you from Birmingham, UK. I'm Vadim Makiev. I'm from St. Petersburg, Russia. So this is going to be an approximately monthly podcast discussing web standards and the world, wider world of web from two grizzled veterans of browsers and standardization. So uh, let's introduce ourselves. Who are you, Vadim, and tell us a war story? Well, I don't have too much to tell, bad memory. But yeah, I used to work as front-end developers for many years, and then I joined Opera where we used to work together for like seven years or so uh, representing Opera browser for the rest of the world. So basically DevRel. And uh, for, for the last three years I've been working in education as a teacher, as someone who teaches uh, mostly beginners, uh, HTML, CSS, some JavaScript, accessibility and things like that. So basically I'm a teacher, but like fancy one. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I was front end tech lead for uh, a big legal organisation in the UK, but I've been involved in tech since I came back to the UK from Thailand in the year 2000. So a long time, which is why I look this dreadful. This is why it's a podcast and not a video cast. Everybody um, worked with Vadim in Opera, did some standardisation stuff, co-invented the picture elements. And now I'm a freelance web standards and accessibility consultant for anybody who wishes to hire me. All right, we have some topics to discuss. Uh, let's see what's been going on recently. First news is uh, NPM and GitHub. Somehow those are related not only in our code, because like in a typical environment, they are heavily related. You're using uh, GitHub to store your code and you're using NPM to get packages from this registry. But now they are connected via Microsoft. So basically what happened before, Microsoft acquired GitHub a year ago already, I think. Yeah, and then they decided to acquire NPM as well. So they somehow decided uh, to support NPM probably because I believe uh, NPM was looking for a way to survive or maybe a way to to support our community and everything we do because like we're ha as a front-end developers, we're heavily rely on NPM registry. It used to be a small thing when uh, Node.js started. There was a number of different uh, package managers and then uh, npm actually won uh, it's it's bundled with node.js so every time you installed node.js you have npm installed so basically it's default but uh not like node.js npm belongs to actual company and uh, there's a story behind this company i heard from cj silveria at uh, gsconf berlin uh, last year so there's a great talk called economics of open source where she explains how npm works and uh, who owns it and what's uh, their goals 
they were desperately trying to monetize themselves to return investments for venture capitalists. By CJ, it's a bad thing for, for, for the community and uh, it could end up in some disaster or we would lose the, the registry or they would do something terrible as f Facebook does with our information <laughs> and with our uh, source code and everything. So I'm not going to explain the whole the whole talk to you. Uh, go and see it. It's 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 very good. But at the end of the talk, she she introduced uh, the Entropic Package Manager, something like NPM, but that belongs to everyone, not the single company. And uh, after that, year after, I'm not sure what's going on with Entropic Package Manager, but this problem, uh, it's not like it's this problem is solved because one company used to own NPM, but now the other company owns it, Microsoft. And I wonder, what do you think about it, Bruce? Does it feel uh, safer for you to, to have our NPM registry in hands of Microsoft instead of, what's the name of a company that used to own NPM? I forgot. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't actually think I knew it was a company yeah. before you mentioned it. So I'm going to have a look at that, uh, that Silverio talk later. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel more comfortable with Microsoft owning it than a bunch of, uh, venture capitalists. Microsoft, at least some parts of Microsoft seem to be behaving as good stewards of open source and Microsoft is less likely to be evil than venture capitalists because they have more money. But I remember reading ages ago that out of the top Fortune 500 companies from 100 years ago, only like 18 still exist now. I can get the exact numbers later and we'll put them in the show notes. Basically, companies do die. I mean, Microsoft is vast, but so was BlackBerry, so was Nokia, who would have thought that they would go away. So I like the idea of the Entropic Package Manager, simply because if we're all self-hosting or if there's multiple mirrors, if one falls apart or goes bankrupt, there are copies. So I'm going to look into that. Uh, but broadly speaking, I do trust Microsoft to look after it properly. But given all the unrest or the uh, uncertainty in the world now, who knows what's going to happen with these big companies uh, once the, uh, the COVID pandemic is over? Nobody knows. I prefer it not to be in the hands of any single organization. Yeah, I agree. And uh, speaking of CJ Silveria, I haven't mentioned that she used to be uh, CEO of NPM. So she knows uh, the situation very well from from inside. So that's that's why she did this talk. I wonder if I haven't followed her on Twitter yet, but I wonder if she commented uh, on this uh, acquisition. I think yeah, it's it's a good thing that now it belongs company with different strategy. I would say mm -hmm. so they don't don't have to squeeze the money out of NPM immediately. There's a plan to integrate these paid features by NPM into GitHub. Mm -hmm. The NPM will stay free for the community. Uh, they're not going to try to monetize it. Instead, they will use existing professional or extra features of GitHub to host packages like private registries and things like that. So it's going to stay free for all of us, which is a good thing. Maybe I don't know the specific details, but sounds sounds great. 
well, I'm glad they're not charging us. You know, if it was like uh, one penny per line of code, you do Hello World in React and you owe them $100,000. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm not sure what's going to happen next, but so far I'm a bit relieved. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, although I'm a bit of a lefty, I don't have a problem with companies making money to cover their costs. You know, they're not trying to um, to screw money out of every developer. It's mostly enterprise level stuff that's paid for, I think. And, and that's fair enough. I mean, how, how much money are companies making out of open source software? Yeah, yeah, a lot. I think they owe us to invest in open source and uh, supporting our registries and uh, for us to create more value for them. So it's I think we're, we're working for each other and that should support both companies and our community. Yeah, symbiosis. Oh yeah, that's the word. <laughs> What's next, Uncle Vadim? HTML. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I saw announcement that HTML6 is coming. But it... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for for all of you that not aware, uh, HTML uh, lost its version. So uh, HTML 5.2 is the last version that there is. I mean, with number. And currently it's uh, HTML living standard by what WG adds. Well, it's just basics. But we're not going to discuss it. There, there was a thread by Top Atkins, like the famous web standardista, the person I admire, the person I respect very much. I saw his talks. I saw, I, I read his specs, like Flexbox and many others. And I agree with almost every opinion he expressed. Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> but but he expressed an opinion recently oh that we're we're not, we don't have to close the tags no uh, and not only that he encourages us to stop closing tags mm -hmm. which is i don't know it's it's too much bruce what do you think well yes and no i i remember in 2010 gosh 10 years ago now i did a few talks in australia with uh, Steve Faulkner. So he would do uh, a couple of hours on ARIA, which was very new at the time. And I did a couple of hours on HTML5, as it was called then. And I remember typing into the browse, you know, and not having a body element and not having a head element and not closing paragraphs uh, uh, to, the, to the horrified looks of the audience. You know, I said... Now, I, I told them the guilty secret. Browsers never cared. Only the XHTML validator did. And browsers never really cared about XHTML. And I remember one woman actually looking looking at me like I'd just, you know, like uh, killed her dog or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it was to make a point um, that the browsers are very, very forgiving and always will be. But the trouble is, is that it's not like every tag can remain unclosed. You know, there are very, very tight definitions of which tags can be left unclosed in precisely which circumstances. And I just think that requires a level of understanding of the HTML5, sorry, the HTML parser 
that I certainly don't have, and I don't think, you know, and I'm a web standards wonk, I don't think that web developers should be in, should be required to have that level of detailed understanding of how the HTML parser works when they could just close their tags as they've been doing. And as long as you validate your code, then you're not going to make a mistake anyway. And I disagree with Tab on one thing. I never leave out the HTML element because accessibility requires that you have a lang attribute to tell assistive technologies which human language your page is in, you know, because the word, the, the string S-I-X is pronounced six, an English page and six in a French page, for example. Um, so kids, people at home, friends, Romans, countrymen, always have an HTML element and always have a lang attribute hanging off it. And apart from uh, lang attribute, there are many use cases for, for you to close actual tags. For example, mm -hmm. uh, that's that's why I replied tab Atkins. Maybe I did it in a, a wrong manner, I'm sorry about that, but still. I, I think I think leaving that headed that horse's head in his bed was a bit much, Vadim. <laughs> that wasn't me. <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, uh, I reply him that there are there are some cases where having HTML and body elements defines what browser gonna do with some tags with some external sources. For example, if you include your script in the body, it will be loaded other way if you would include it in head. The same applies to actual link element. If you have a link rail style sheet, I believe uh, there was an experiment or even implemented feature in Chrome that Chrome would block the rendering of the page if it's gonna if it's uh, style sheet included in head, and it will postpone the, the loading and it will uh, carry on the rendering and everything if it's if it's in the actual body. So you would you would have a chance to load styles right next to the actual module it required. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was a trick to 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 split uh, style sheet into multiple files and not block rendering because a browser would would request each of them. There was a trick, and if you don't have head and body, how would you uh, split those two use cases? So browser will will have to guess like, okay, here's the title element, right? We're still in the head. Okay, here is the link element. How would browser d decide if you're, if you're trying to include this link style sheet in head or if it's already body? Or the, the same applies to script. So to express something a bit more complicated than demos here, top Atkins showing like list par paragraphs and titles, you have to include all those tags. And if in some cases you can remove those because you don't express anything complicated, it's not for developers to do every time. In most cases, you have a template for the outer part of your web page. Mm -hmm. Universal template for every occasion, and it's stored in one file. And uh, on every in every case for every page, you include some internals for that page. So, like every time, you have to decide if you if you need one template or another. The point is, I think it's it's work for optimizers. You wouldn't go um, through your CSS removing the very last semicolon of your CSS property because you don't you don't need it because there, there there's a closing curly bracket. You wouldn't go for that, right? 
because it doesn't make sense if you want to type another property on the next line you have to put it mm -hmm. the semicolon and then yeah if you want to sort properties you also need to put it back and remove them yeah it's basically like trailing comma in javascript mm -hmm. uh the same the same for html it's easier to always have closing closed text it's oh it's easier to have important text like head and body uh, it's easier to have quotes in attributes because right now you have just a single value and in a few minutes you'll have two classes for example, inside of your attributes, two values separated by space. And you have to put those quotes back. Mm -hmm. And every time you have to think, I need it, now I don't need it anymore. And you have to carry this cognitive load on you every time. It's much easier to have something reliable that would work in every case than to decide every time what's, what I'm going to do. It's for automated optimization tools to decide if you have just a single value inside of your class. Yeah, I'm going to strip those double quotes. Mm -hmm. if, if you have two values, I'm going to keep them. It's not for developer to decide. So uh, the same way CSS optimizers work, the same way JS optimizers work, they analyze your code and they remove uh, things that browsers don't need. I'm not suggesting that you have to put like T hat and T body in your tables. Sometimes it's useful, but in most cases it's it's useless because they just wrap the data into parts. But for table cells and table rows, it's kind of easier to to parse like visually parse your code if you have those tags in my opinion maybe it's just an old habit I, you know i still have this uh if you remember or not a list apart t-shirts <laughs> i still have this a list apart t-shirt with a fist mm -hmm. with six fingers and the xhtml written on on them yeah 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 i remember that it's 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 full of holes and it's very old but sometimes i wear it just just for fun and uh, I used to be a big HTML believer for a while. Mm -hmm. But then HTML5 came and I thought, yeah, it probably makes sense to, to stop playing XML uh, and uh, just let's, let's write the, the actual code the browser uh, understand and that's easier to write. But I kept this idea that closing tags and closing attributes, it's, it's a reliable thing to do. Basically, we're relying on both on forgiving HTML parsers and code that's strict enough to be easy to read, to be easy to maintain. That's that's my point. Yeah, no, totally agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I in production code, I always quote attributes, even if it's a single attribute, and I'll close tags and have a body and a head, etc. And and like you, I I still have a little bit of residual XML about me like uh don't tell anybody but i still feel a bit sick if i see uppercase tags <laughs> yeah yeah when i see it it feels like uh it's like gothic a font mm -hmm. it's like from old days yes yes that's true it, if i see an uppercase tag i think oh, okay i'm looking at geocities <laughs> Or like the, fir the first HTML spec or something like this. When I was in uh, Australia, I remember that I, w I did, uh, I wrote head with alternating uppercase and lowercase letters. Oh and that's God. when, that's when the lady looked at me like I'd killed her dog. <laughs> Good times. Uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's SpongeBob case, right? <laughs> I was just taking a sip of coffee there, listeners, and I very nearly um, sprayed it all over my screen. So thanks for that, Mackie. You're welcome, Bruce.
Moving on, what do we have? Oh, user agent strings. How we love user agent strings, Vadim. Very much. We used to, yeah, play a lot of um, games with user agent uh, at Opera, right? Oh, yes. Yes. The browser sniffers. Uh, for those who don't know, listeners, the user agent string is something that your browser sends when it sends a request. And it, it it is ostensibly to identify what the browser is and its version number. But the trouble is, is that um, every browser claims to be itself plus every other browser. So it's an incredibly brittle method of identifying which browser's coming. I would say that it, in other words, it's total garbage. It's total garbage, yes. And also, these days, there is no necessity to sniff a browser or a browser version. Everything should be feature detection. Yeah, by all means, you know, say a message saying this is a video conferencing website that uses WebRTC. You do not have WebRTC, sorry. But don't say, hello, you're using Firefox, therefore you can't come in simply because you only tested in Chrome, because that way is wrong and evil. Well, yeah, and um, sometimes developers do uh, some guesses based on user agent and wrong ones. So uh, in Opera case, they would think that Opera is Opera Mini, and they would they would give you on desktop like optimized and stripped down version of their desktop website because they would see Opera in there. But good news because um, the browsers are experimenting with freezing their user agent strings so that browser sniffing won't be needed anymore. In theory, Safari started uh, freezing their their user agent stream some time ago, and then uh, also Chrome introduced this uh, idea. So they have they have the whole blog post uh, regarding that. So I think there there was a plan to to freeze it completely by by September this year, twenty uh, twenty. Not sure if it's the plan still considering everything that's that's going on around since they are changing the schedule for release schedule for for their browser i'm not sure if it's going to happen uh, in september but still there is a plan and you all have to be prepared and i believe uh shima vidas the wonderful person that i follow on twitter and uh, author of web platform news one of the best news sources for for the web platform i recommend everyone subscribing to it on twitter at least so basically what he did he tried to browse the web for a week without user agent header not just freezed one not just a random one but without one and he saw very interesting results. Most of the websites were fine. They were trying to break some features they have. They were trying to uh, to tell that your browser is not supported and show some pop-ups. But uh, in most cases, they, they were working fine. But in some cases, they would just say, here's the capture for you, and your browser is not supported. And in some cases, even... Some error codes, 307, 403, 401, and many others. And I believe those uh, server errors were caused by, they were trying to prevent uh, DDoS attacks or some unknown or shady browsers or like agents, I would say, uh, accessing their website and trying to, to put some pressure on their servers. And uh, it's a totally fine thing to do to protect your uh, users protect your servers from unknown user agents. But 
I don't think we the web should work without a user agent checking at all because we used to have it for for a while like from the from the very beginning but it was an inter- interesting experiment to see if the web is actually ready for this well i think there's a a big difference between using the web with a frozen but known ua string and no ua string at all i i think it's completely legitimate for site owners to say this actually doesn't look like a browser which is why some of them pop up a capture to check whether it's a distributed denial of service attack. But I imagine that if we're all surfing with the same frozen UA string, those sites would still work. But who knows? But I I think it's generally a good idea for the long-term health of the web and the health of niche, niche browsers, smaller browsers, you know, things like Opera, things like Vivaldi, Brave, etc. You know, we know from our time at Opera, even after we moved to be using exactly the same code base as Chrome, that sites would say, you, you, you're not supported. And we knew we were. And there was no Opera word uh, in our user engine. There was a OPR mm-hmm, mm-hmm. word, which was enough for them to say weird thing to us. And it has to be said, one of the main offenders for doing that were Google's web properties. You know, Google's web properties were telling Opera users that Opera, which is the same code base as Chrome, wasn't supported. It'll be interesting to see because like any company above a certain size, probably 10 people is that certain size, Google is a a hydra, has many heads, and uh, different teams do different things. There's not sort of a great master plan that they all work to, apart from making money. So it'll be interesting to see whether the Google web properties find another way to uh, gently nudge people to download Chrome. Well, the Shimmer's experiment shows that Google is kind of fine with empty user agents. So most of their services were working as they they used to work with user agent string. And uh, I can tell by my experience, I've been using Firefox as my main browser for for a year or maybe more already. And uh, it works. It used to work terribly when I tried it a couple of years ago. But these days, it works totally fine uh, in my case. So probably Google decided to stop playing around with uh, serving websites and their services only for Chrome, well, they, they changed something. Uh, but for for Apple, for some other sites, uh, like Twitch blocks it, like Facebook trying to tell you that you're using the wrong browser, Ars Technica, and some others. So yeah, the web is not fully ready for empty user agent string, and it's probably going to be ready for, for the frozen one. But we'll see, we'll see. Well, that's a good thing, I suppose, if Chrome and Safari are doing it, that is enough of a percentage of the population that the websites will probably have to take heed. I mean, I know Safari isn't isn't a great percentage of the web, but we know that everybody fetishizes their their iPhone users more than anybody else. Well, I, I believe uh, on mobile, the Safari is very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, at least in US, and most businesses are targeting their interests to US. So, yeah. uh, but um, I believe it's it's also uh, Firefox planning to do something like this. So it's not just Safari and Chrome; it's Firefox. So. So basically, every browser 
well, not sure about Edge, but I, I think they're, they're also follow. So basically, user agent string is going away. Well, at least in, in form that it used to work for us. Good. RIP user agent strings. Talking of Safari, what's our last topic, Mr. McKeeve? The latest news, uh, the latest scandal, I would say, it's not just news. It's that Safari is planning to freeze, well, it's already froze the third-party cookies. On March 24th, they announced that they're going to block cookies by default and more. More on that later. But So they used to have this intelligent uh, tracking prevention uh, algorithm built into iOS and macOS and, and other platforms they have. Uh, basically, it was the way for them to, to decide if this third-party cookie is going to track you or if it's there for, for a reason, for, for a reason that's useful for the actual user. But then uh, they realized that there is a way to trick this uh, ITP thing and there is a way to fingerprint it based on that behavior as well and some other problems. So they decided to just completely turn off the third-party cookies. I agree with uh, with community uh, that it's bad timing for this because it's always good to work towards uh, security and privacy of our users and uh, as web user I feel that it's a good thing to do. But timing, I'm not just a user, I'm a developer. These days, Chrome is trying to freeze their release schedule or at least release only security updates, not new features. So developers would have some time to to help their companies or to help their families to overcome this problem. We have this coronavirus situation. But Safari, yeah, decided to release it uh, immediately and uh, timing is really is really off with this thing what do you think Bruce? any kind of major change at the moment is a bit off um but uh there's also the progressive web app story oh yeah somewhere along the lines somewhere at the the last third of the, of the blog post they said oh yeah by the way we're also going to disable JavaScript storage for websites that weren't interacted with by user for seven days. So it's IndexedDB, local storage, media keys, session storage, and service worker registrations. Basically, everything that you can set uh, locally or store locally would go away if user wouldn't interact with your website for seven days, which is, well... It's not something that you would rely on on a typical website. If you're storing your information only locally, you're going to lose it because browsers, they have limited uh, memory. They have limited storage on mobile. It's always full of photos, applications, and things like that. So it's not a reliable uh, storage. So uh, the typical thing for developers to, to do is to have a local copy on your in your browser storage and uh, to synchronize it on server. Every time you have network connection, don't wait, just synchronize it on server and you'll be fine. But it's not the case for, uh, for PWAs or it's not the case for the modern approach. We decided that we need to compete with uh, native applications uh, that's where this web manifest and PWA thing came and uh, service workers and things like that. So we decided with that we need offline storage, that we need to rely on extra 
a proxy sitting between the website and the server and taking care of uh, heavy resources. And Safari haven't implemented it immediately. It took uh, them a couple of years to decide if they're needed or not. And we thought, yeah, they totally fine with uh, offline web. And uh, they also upgraded their PWA implementation in iOS, which is not PWA, but they're using some parts of it. And also, they're also afraid of the, the, the word itself. Uh, <laughs> like in, in, every, in, in every Apple communication, you, you wouldn't find a PWA word. Why is it so, Bruce? Do you have an idea? Why are they so uh, anti-saying PWA? Yeah. I think they, my big conspiracy theory, Apple have a vested interest in not not making people aware that you can have web apps that compete with native apps because they make a considerable amount of money with their app store. So does the Google. Yes, but Google has a vested interest in the web being able to do all the things that apps can do because they want the information not to be siloed in apps so they can do the search and then monetize it. Apple have no interest in the open web being able to do the things that apps can do because otherwise they might not be able to sell as many apps. Right, so they're trying to hide this information from from app developers, so they wouldn't run away from App Store to to the web. Well, app developers have a vested interest in not selling through the App Store because Apple take thirty percent. On the other hand, how do you monetize a web app? Nobody really knows. Well, there are ways, but yeah, it mostly involves ads and some other not direct uh, income uh, sources. But um, yeah, I, I personally think, and this is not me being rude to the WebKit team, because the WebKit team want their product to be the best in the world, obviously. But these are decisions that Apple makes, and Apple is not WebKit, and WebKit is not Apple. I think they want the browser to be good enough that people don't hurl their iPhones out of the window and go to Android. but. They don't want it to be good enough that it can compete with native apps. Yeah, it's probably the case. Um, but for for this um, problem with uh, JavaScript storage, I think they're trying to protect users. But they're going too far, I think. Well, it, it would definitely protect users, but it would make their lives not as as good as it would be with offline capabilities. You you might say like seven days, it's it's enough for for browsers to decide that you don't need this storage anymore. But it's not the case with uh, Chrome. It's not the case with other browsers. They wouldn't clear the storage. And I think developers would be discouraged to compete with native applications. They would keep on doing regular websites like all of the companies trying to put some new features, some new technologies and APIs on the web. This is very good for us as a community, as like front-end community. But um, in some cases, Apple is making some steps back, which is very, very, very bad for the platform, I think. I agree. I mean, they did caveat it by saying the seven-day limit doesn't apply if it's been installed to home screen. But... Installing to home screen 
is quite tricky, I'm told, on iOS. I don't have an iOS device, but you know, you have to hunt through the menu options. There's not a, an easy way, and they don't do ambient badging, which is a horrible phrase, but that's when the browser can say, hey, you can install me if you want to. The thing is, is not every progressive web app is designed to be installed to home screen, and not every service worker is to make a progressive web app. It, it, there's a legitimate use case for service workers to enhance performance, which benefits us all. Arguably, iOS users are less concerned about performance because their phones are whizzier and faster, but they still can be on bad networks. And uh, native apps have their limitations. They used to be limited to a single form factor of a device. Uh, but uh, these days, apps, they, they can adapt to your device, which is a good thing. But still, native apps are created only for this platform, only for this device in most cases. And uh, as for the web, it can take a lot of shapes and forms. It can uh, be opened in um, e-ink reader. It can be printed. It can be export to PDF. It can be projected on, uh, on the wall. It can be installed as application that would mimic the native application uh, behavior. Apple is trying to limit this behavior so they wouldn't compete with native apps, I think. Or they're trying to care about security and privacy too much and I'm not sure if there's too much for 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 security and privacy. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm a bit confused by the situation. I think there there are priorities somewhere in in the wrong place, considering our background and experience in the web. I think they're not too much in love in the web. They they in love with their users. They're trying to protect them, but they're not seeing the perspective. They they see the web as a threat for their app store. That's the problem, I think. I agree. So, uh, Tim Cook, I know you're listening. Vadim and I say stop it. If you want some advice, Tim, pop on our conference call with me and Vadim. It's just a million dollars for a consultancy. I'm willing to do this for free. Pay, pay all the money to, to Bruce. Sounds good. So, I think uh, we've covered our um, our topics for this month, Mr. McKeith. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it monthly podcast. I think we we should we should just record it anytime we have something to discuss. Sounds good to me. Flexible schedule is always better. Indeed, flexible, just like the web. Anyway, folks, thanks for listening. Been listening to Bruce Lawson and Vadim McKeith. Now wash your hands. See you soon. Bye. Thank you.